This is Tech Talk with your host, Tom DiOria. Tom will spend the next hour making your life with technology a little easier with explanations of the different aspects of today's technology and how it can benefit your home, small office, or enterprise. Now here's your host, Tom DiOria. Welcome to IMI's Tech Talk. It's the third Sunday of May, May 17th, 2015. We're on at 6 p.m. in the New York listening area and 3 p.m. in Arizona. Today we're live from our New York offices and we're going to be discussing computer forensics and cybersecurity with a former FBI agent, special agent, special supervisory agent, Robert Osgood. I'm Tom DiOria. I'm the CEO of Information Methods Incorporated, and together with our weekly guests, our show will help our listeners, whether a business or home technology user, make better use of all aspects of technology. Just in case you're a first-time listener, in our first segment, Tech Talk provides you with a review of last week's most significant events in technology. We start their increased coverage of New York's technology scene, and we follow this with our industry-wide report, which could contain information on conferences, announcements by vendors, new releases of software equipment, or new contract opportunities. One of our guests followed us from many aspects of business and industries, and if you wish us to consider a topic for a future show, you can email your suggestions to techtalk, that's T-E-C-H-T-A-L-K, at imi-us.com, we'll get back to you pretty quickly. Anytime after our show introduction, please give us a call or send an email message with questions on today's topic or anything else we might be able to help you with. You can call 277-KFNX, that's 277-5369. And outside the 602 listening area, you can call us toll-free at 1-866-536-1100. You can use that email address I just gave you, techtalk at imi-us.com if you want to send us emails. Email questions. If we can't get you on uh, today's show, we'll definitely send you a response and try and get you on next week. We're also being simulcast on the web, so if you uh, can't get to your radio but you want to listen to us live, you can go to KFNX's website, which is 1100kfnx.com. And if you want to listen to this show again or any of our previous shows, you can go to our website, which is imi-us.com. In the upper right-hand corner is the Tech Talk button. Click on that. All the shows are archived. You can download them, send them to your friends, listen to them as many times as you want. It's free, so please take advantage of that, and please call in any time during the show, and we'll try and get you on as quickly as possible. First segment of Week in Review is the increased coverage of technology events in New York City and around the world. It's combined by Dave Brandon, Dan Dioria, and Jose Batista. And I hope you all had an opportunity on uh, Friday to wish a peace officer your thanks for being there, uh, protecting us every day, uh, doing a job which uh, many of us don't understand. But without them, uh, there'd be chaos. Friday was Peace Officer Memorial Day, which leads me into my first story. We had an incident here in New York where... I'm not sure the politically correct way of referring to this bad guy, but he comes out with a hammer, and he's been attacking women with the clawed end of it uh, around the city for a while. He, for some reason, decided to pick on a police officer, and he picked on the wrong police officer. He hit uh, Lauren O'Rourke on the head with it, but luckily her partner, Geraldo Cassini, Sagni, took amazingly fast accident, and as Police Commissioner Bratton reported, within three seconds, he shot the uh, bad guy three times before he could 
really inflict or even kill uh, his partner. He was charged with felony assault and criminal possession of uh, a weapon last Thursday. He also attacked four other innocent people, as I mentioned. Cassigny opened fire on Burrell in the middle of a crowd of Midtown Street, only shot three times, hit the bad guy all three times, didn't injure any uh, bystanders. So I must say that shows you a lot. Shows you control, shows you that he was a good shot, and stopped uh, an incident that could have got really... Uh, Really messy. So we just want to say uh, hats off to both of those uh, police officers uh, for being there. And if you want to look at it uh, in more detail, you can go to the uh, NYPD website or any one of the major New York City uh, news sources to, to find out about that. Verizon buys AOL for $4.4 billion. Cranes tells us this, but you have to realize, from our perspective, AOL hasn't been uh, in the forefront of uh, email in a long time, and Verizon has a very interesting reputation, to say the least, in New York about uh, their customer satisfaction. Uh, but in this $4.4 billion deal, uh, maybe good for AOL shareholders who will be getting a 15% premium on their stock. Uh, and it seemed clear, according to Cranes, uh, it was a clear win for Tim Armstrong, who's been working on a turnaround of AOL since uh, it was spun off from Time Warner four years ago, because uh, Time Warner realized what they had gotten themselves into. But most of all, the deal uh, could create a new kind of media company anchored in New York and leveraging all the strengths Mr. Armstrong has long said he gained from being based in the city, access to ad technology and unrivaled pool of media talent. The full stack of ad tech properties he has spent the last four years building and the streaming video uh, networks have made AOL a leader in online content, uh, which will now be put to use across Verizon's high-speed mobile services and any streaming video platform it launches. So we'll see whether or not this uh, marriage really works the way everybody thinks it will and whether or not these two companies uh, can pull that off. Times tells us that Mayor de Blasio is scheduled to be honored at the reception in uh, California hosted by several tech moguls to raise money for a political group run by the mayor's close allies. But the mayor moves to court. Silicon Valley Internet titans, including Facebook, Google, and Twitter, have issued a public rebuke of the de Blasio administration on the ostensibly obscure subject, municipal taxi policy. At issue is a rule proposed by the city's Taxi and Limousine Commission aimed at bolstering its regulation over the fledgling app market that has helped reshape the taxi industry. Under the proposal, smartphone app operators must apply for approval of a modification for certain changes to any app used to arrange vehicle rides for hire. Opponents have said the proposal, which is scheduled to be discussed at a hearing in a couple of weeks, uh, could effectively grant the commission veto power over software updates through the administration, though the administration has disputed this characterization. The company Uber, which is named in neither proposal nor letter, is widely considered the focus of both. Uber operates nearly 16,000 affiliated black cars in New York, according to the commission, roughly 60% of a citywide total. The Times also tells us that Reddit, the popular online message forum, has long been uh, free-for-all for collective idea of the Internet. A few 
sacred commandments kept users in check. Thou shalt not spam. Thou shalt not post personally identifiable information. And thou shalt not break the site. Reddick is changing slowly but surely into something with a few more rules. The company announced on Thursday that it was updating its site-wide policies to explicitly prohibit harassment against users, a move that the company said would promote free expression on Reddit without fear of retribution from a vocal minority. Users who view or experience harassment on the service will be able to email Reddit employees working as moderators who have the ability to remove content and ban offenders from the site. In the policy update, Reddit defines harassment as continued actions that would make someone conclude that Reddit is not a safe platform to express their ideas. Okay. And finally, Fox News tells us Apple Watches can easily be factory reset by thieves without the owner's passcode. Staffers at the Apple-centric iDownload blog have discovered their method documented in a YouTube video involves bringing up a power-off screen, choosing a factory reset option, and then placing the Apple Watch on a charger, which all wipe all user, which will wipe all user data and settings without the user's passcode. Once factory reset, the watch is essentially like new and can be paired with any iPhone. Huh. Apple Watch owners are not required to set a passcode for the devices unless they intend to use the watch for Apple Pay. The passcode is set. The user must enter it every time the Apple Watch is removed from the rich and when it is rebooted we're going to take a break we're going to test uh, bob osgood and talk to you about computer forensics and cybersecurity. this is tom diorio alive and i am my tech talk on kfnx am 1100 please stay tuned we'll be right back after these messages Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on the 17th of May, 2015. This is Tom DeRoyer, and uh, as I mentioned to you before the break, we're going to have a very interesting show. We're going to be talking to you about computer forensics and cybersecurity, a very hot topic these days. Our guest is uh, Robert Osgood. He's an accomplished, proactive professional with expertise in developing and applying technology to law enforcement, a former supervisory special agent with the FBI, Bob now spends his time as a Director of Computer Forensics and Data Analytics at George Mason University. Bob is also a longtime CPA, CPA out of the state of New York. Bob, thanks a lot for taking the time with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Okay, so uh, we're going to talk about computer forensics and cybersecurity. Let's start at the beginning and tell our listeners what digital forensics is all about. Sure. Well, digital forensics is, is really uh, taking those knowledge, skills, abilities uh, in the areas of, let's say, computer science, computer engineering, law, criminology, and last but not least, ethics, uh, in order to collect, process, analyze data, and you have to do it in such a way that it can actually be successfully admitted into a court of law. Now, obviously, there are a lot of components that, that make up digital forensics to allow you to do that. Um, I guess I have a two-part question here. First of all, as an FBI agent uh, for, for many years, 
Did you start out in this uh, area, or did you migrate toward it? And then maybe you can tell us about things you picked up along the way that now comprise digital forensics. No, that's actually a pretty good question. So I, I started in the FBI in 1985, and in the 80s, the FBI was really just starting to automate. So as new agents coming in, there were a few of us that were computer savvy. And so uh, pretty quickly in the FBI, I started gravitating towards technical-type assignments. And then uh, I was one of the first uh, computer forensic examiners uh, in the FBI. So I guess I kind of started that way. I guess you came in at the at the very beginning and helped, I guess, maybe create the FBI's focus on this since uh, N85 digital forensics really wasn't necessary, I guess. But maybe you could tell us a little bit more about why we care if there's digital forensics. I mean, what do you use well, it for? What's the what's the purpose of it? Sure. So the uh, uh, why we care and the, and the purpose of digital forensics is that, you know, look at the world we live in today. Everything is electronic. Everything is data, right? So regardless of whether you are uh, you're walking on the street and you're talking on your cell phone, you're on your laptop, you're on your tablet, you're on your desktop computer at work, regardless of where you are, as human beings, we're digitally interfacing today. So what that means in reality, whether you're talking, uh, whether you're talking uh, a, a criminal case like a crime, whether you're talking a civil matter like one company suing another, uh, or with the intelligence and intelligence matter, uh, you know our lives are 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 imprinted in in digital media, and so the the purpose of digital forensics is that when uh, as a, from a criminal perspective, if if a crime has been committed or we suspect the crime has been committed, we want to be able to get access to digital media, and to be able to uh, take that digital media, find information on it that we can turn into evidence. How did you migrate toward uh, George Mason? Were they did they already have a program, or did you help create it and use your talents to uh, make it coursework? So I was uh, one of uh, several FBI agents that were go that was going to graduate school here at George Mason, and then when we finished, uh, we asked the engineering school if uh, they would be interested in in building a computer forensics program. And their response was very positive. They said, yeah, that's great. We'd love to do that, except one thing. Well, what was it? Well, we don't know what computer forensics is. Can you help us build it? <laughs> so with the help, you know, with permission from the FBI, uh, we, uh, you know, we helped them design a, uh, a computer forensics master's program. And then when I retired from the FBI, uh, George Mason hired me as the director of the program. Is that its own discipline, or does it fit under some other under other other category like uh, business or computer science or well, it's kind of its own discipline, but it's it's one of these uh, you know it's one of these interdisciplinary uh, type programs. So you know uh, what we teach and, and what we try to get across to uh, to people who are interested in computer forensics, it, it deals with computer science, uh, it, it deals with computer engineering, uh, it deals with uh, ethics, uh, fraud. And these are all the different types of courses and the different types of components of the program. So to answer your question is, since it's interdisciplinary, it's, it's many things, but primarily technology-based, primarily computer science and computer engineering-based. Now, you mentioned two, two components, I guess. One is uh, 
crime created with technology or facilitating technology, and then there's the whole bad guys national security aspect of it. Talk to us a little bit about the cybercrime aspect first. Sure. So, uh, you know, cybercrime, once it gets noticed, it's one of these situations where it kind of permeates, once again, everything that we do. I mean, look at, look at our computers today. We all have antivirus packages uh, on our, our systems. Uh, we, uh, we have to be very careful how we answer emails today. Uh, websites that we go to. So regardless of whether you're a Fortune 100 company or whether you're somebody, you know, whether you're a retired civil servant and you're home and you just want to, you know, keep in contact with your family, uh, you know, cybercrime is, is a reality. You know, for the individual, the, the primary uh, concern should be, uh, you know, somehow somebody getting hold of your, what we call your PII or your personal identifying information, uh, which a lot of people usually end up giving away uh, simply because of uh, poor, let's say, let's say poor security etiquette on the Internet. I have a, a whole bunch of questions for you. All the credit card companies are now coming out with these cards with uh, embedded chip in it, so you just wave it around. By the way, that technology is not new. It's only new in the U.S. Correct. It's been all over the world. There has not been a big move to change from the current. Because what has to happen for those cards to work properly is all the vendors that we go to, the malls, the supermarkets we go to, have to change all their credit card scanners to the embedded chip system. Yeah, that's what's been holding it up here. I mean, I gather in Europe and Asia that's, that's pretty commonplace. But how does that fall into the whole digital crime aspect since, you know, you hear these commercials on television, you should buy a wallet to protect yourself so that people can't just walk by you and get all your information. Is that an issue? I, I, I don't think, I mean, my personal opinion is that, uh, you know, uh, RFI scanning of credit cards is really relatively low threat. The biggest challenge in dealing with electronic transactions, which is what credit cards allow us to do, so we can go online and we can buy stuff at Amazon.com and through Google and everything else that's out there, is the fact when large organizations get breached, their customer databases get compromised, credit cards and various identifying information essentially get stolen. That's where the real challenge exists. Okay, we're going to take a break now. This is uh, Tom DiOrea and I'm Ice Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's Sunday, the 17th of May, 2015. We're talking to Bob Osgood, a former FBI agent and director of computer forensics and data analytics at George Mason University. So please stay tuned. This is the half-hour uh, break, so you're going to get the national news. And come back, and we'll have more of our guest, Bob Osgood. Welcome back to IMI Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiOri. It's the 17th of May, 2015. And today's show is Computer Forensics and Cybersecurity with uh, Bob Osgood. And um, before the break, we were talking about the uh, new credit cards that your credit cards company has a little square technology thing in it, which uh, is, I'm not sure if that's actually the technology or just gives you that indication. Um, on the other side, is the whole terrorist thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And is 
that covered by computer forensics and cybersecurity, or is that a whole different thing? Oh, no, it's actually, it, the thing with computer forensics is that if you can think of a violation, you can think of a crime, computer forensics is there, and computer forensic is contributing to the investigation. So uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of counterterrorism, uh, just as an example, uh, remember a few years ago, uh, there were two movies that came out. One was called The Hunt for Osama Bin Laden, and the other yes. one was called Zero Dark Thirty. Do you, uh, hopefully, maybe you've maybe seen one of those movies. Or both. Or both. Have you? So uh, there were pretty good movies, uh, but as a computer forensic examiner, the, the thing that struck me during those movies, which was absolutely true, which was after the, the, uh, the, uh, the Navy SEALs, after they breached the compound and uh, they, uh, they shot Osama bin Laden and they were able to secure the compound, the next thing they did, which was true, is that all of a sudden every one of those SEALs became computer forensic examiners because what did they do? They started seizing digital media. So they were grabbing hard drives, thumb drives, DVDs, CDs, whatever you could possibly think of, uh, they were grabbing it. And, of course, they had very little time to do this because they had to exfiltrate themselves before they ended up in, you know, a massive firefight, potentially. So, uh, so e even the Navy SEALs uh, at some point in time have to become forensic examiners, at least in terms of collection. Uh, because, let's face it, you know, uh, uh, bin Laden's entire network was on those computers. And, of course, that information was seized. It's classified. It, intelligence agencies are working on it, you know. But uh, that's a great example of uh, even in counterterrorism investigations, uh, the, the, uh, the need and, and, the, and what computer forensics brings to the table. The other side of counterterrorism has to deal with social media and how terrorist organizations are using social media to actually recruit jihadists. And so on, on that side of the equation, from a, uh, a counterterrorism perspective, uh, you know, uh, all, the in, all the investigative agencies out there are, 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 are trying to, uh, you know, identify people, you know, via these social media sites who may end up, uh, as what's happened in the recent past, uh, you know, becoming violent and uh, creating acts of terror. So it sounds very labor-intensive. I mean, is it computers searching computers, or is it computers gathering data that then people look at, or is it a combination of the two? It sounds to me like it's got to be a person looking at the, the specific captured data or monitored data to really pick things out, or is, am I mistaken? No, I mean, it, it comes down to the human element. Obviously, there's a lot of technology around that to support it. Uh, you need a technology infrastructure in order to, uh, you know, to properly examine uh, you know, digital information. Uh, but the bottom line, you know, it, it, it eventually puts, uh, you basically need at some point in time fingers on the keyboard where someone's going to say that piece of information is important. Uh, in the case of a criminal case, it would be evidentiary. From an intelligence point of view, it would be something that potentially would be actionable. And from a civil point of view, it would be something that you could use either as the plaintiff or as a defendant to prove your point. What's your biggest challenge when you are in the FBI in terms of cybercrime and digital forensics? That's a good question. So from, a, from an overall perspective, I would say the, the, the challenges were, were twofold. Uh, one, the one challenge is, is constantly changing technology. So just think about 
the, uh, the new apps that have come up in the last year or two. And most of them, I don't even know what they are, you know. But there's constantly, there's a new app. There's a, constantly a new device coming on. I mean, we have the iPhone 4. We have the iPhone 5. We have the iPhone 6. We have various versions of, uh, of other types of mobile devices, uh, you know, Android, various versions of Android. So one of the challenges is just keeping current with, uh, current, keeping current with the marketplace. Um, the second challenge, which is, uh, which is also, also serious, has to do with the encryption and the fact that uh, encryption has been the boogeyman of computer forensics for, for many years and really hasn't had much of an impact until recently. So, for example, uh, it, recent iterations of Android and, and uh, Apple's uh, iPhone iOS, now uh, if, the, if the user wants to and they encrypt their device, uh, there's no more backdoors. Those devices cannot be decrypted. So that puts law enforcement in a, uh, a very, very difficult situation where, uh, let's face it, uh, our phones are our lives today. Everything about us is on our phones. If somebody is a good example, uh, I was working, assisting last year uh, on a, a homicide case, and the, uh, uh, we, there was vital information that was on a phone uh, that, uh, you know, it was encrypted and we couldn't, uh, we couldn't decrypt it. And, and so that case went unsolved as a result of that. And so, That's uh, scary. The, uh, so those, two cha- those are two, the two big challenges in the industry. That's pretty scary that uh, with all your expertise and tools that you have that uh, there was no way to do that. So the bad guy, yeah, so, yeah, the so bad guy is very familiar with that? I'm sorry, go ahead. Are the bad guys very familiar with uh, how to protect themselves, or are we lucky that many of them are too stupid? Well, it's probably both. The uh, criminal element, you know, terrorists, spies, all the people that are out there that we try to protect the country from, they're smart people. There's a lot of smart people. They know how to use technology for very good reasons, by the way, in my opinion. Uh, you know, once these technologies like, like iOS and like Android became essentially uncrackable, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the bad guys know that. And uh, they're, they're going to they're gonna use that technology uh, to their advantage. <sighs> That's scary. We've heard a lot from the FBI about going dark. What is that? What is it? And well, how it's does actually kind of me? what we've just been talking about. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, EAD Amy Hess appeared before Congress uh, talking specifically about going dark. And so what going dark is, to kind of reiterate what we just spoke about, it's about all these two new technologies that are coming online that the, the government has to adapt to. And so remember, we're always playing catch up there. And the big piece uh, that's of tremendous concern uh, is encryption. And uh, you may think that, well, you know, people don't use encryption. But uh, if you look at, if you, if, you go, uh, if, you have, if you have Google Mail or if you have most of the big mail packages today, if you look and you're accessing it through the web and you look, look up in the corner of your browser and you see the term HTTPS, that means that that, that particular session is encrypted. So encryption is becoming more and more common today. The concern is, is that, you know, law enforcement agencies, and I, I came from the FBI, 
but we're talking about all law enforcement agencies here, are just trying to stay basically their nose just above water when it comes to technology. And so, in, so, the, so the implementation of encryption that's essentially unbreakable uh, makes, it, uh, makes the job just that much more difficult. Well, that's scary. And on that note, we're going to take a break. This is Tom Diorio on IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. It's the 17th of May, 2015. And we're talking to Bob Osgood about computer forensics and cybersecurity. Please stay tuned. We're going to be right back after these messages. Welcome back to IMI's Tech Talk on KFNX AM 1100. I'm Tom DiUri. It's the 17th of May, 2015. And our show today is Computer Forensics and Cybersecurity, and Bob Osgood is our guest. And he's the Director of Computer Forensics and Data Analytics at George Mason University, a former supervisory special agent with the FBI. Bob, tell our listeners if they want to follow up, if you have questions, want to learn more about uh, what George Mason's doing in the area, how do they get in touch with you? couple ways. The easiest way, obviously, is via email. So if you uh, want to contact me, uh, my email address is really simple. It's rosgood, spelled O-S-G-O-O-D, at gmu.edu. Uh, we also have, as we all do, we have websites today. So uh, our computer forensics website is uh, cfrs.gmu.edu, and our data analytics website is dataanalytics.gmu.edu. Okay, so they can learn all about uh, what the programs are there. Is this a graduate program or an undergraduate program, or both? Well, both of those programs are, are graduate programs, but we also have uh, one of the first programs in the country in cybersecurity engineering, which is an undergraduate program. So as you can see at the engineering school here at George Mason, we're, we're very much in touch with cybersecurity, computer forensics, and data analytics. Why? Well, look at where we are in Northern Virginia we can literally reach out and, and basically touch the government. And uh, they're, they're a big user of those skills. And are all the cases in-class cases, or do you do anything online? We do some stuff online. Uh, most of what we do is what we call brick-and-mortar, uh, but we do offer some, uh, some courses online. Okay. So picking up on that, what do people with uh, digital forensics degrees from George Mason do once they graduate? Sure. So... Uh, uh, people graduate from George Mason, and they can do one of several things. Uh, one is they can go into law enforcement, uh, work for the government, federal, state, and local. Another thing they can do is they can go to work for the numerous number of government contractors uh, that support uh, both the Department of Defense, uh, law enforcement community uh, as well. Uh, the other place where graduates tend to get jobs is with uh, law firms uh, and especially accounting firms. And so uh, as well as uh, another general area where uh, we tend to, uh, uh, graduates tend to go to work is in the area of uh, computer incident response as well. Now, what type of undergraduate degree, although it sounds like it's pretty broad, helps facilitate them in the graduate programs? The way it works here at, at Mason uh, with the computer forensics program is that we're, we're looking for, uh, we don't have a specific deg undergraduate degree that uh, we're looking for, but we do uh, ask people to have uh, a certain technical background. So we'll look for certain courses 
in, uh, let's say, computer programming, uh, networking, uh, operating systems. And so if somebody's a good, uh, a good potential candidate, but they're missing a couple of courses, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll matriculate them, uh, and they'll have to take a couple extra prerequisites in order to get up to speed. Uh, okay, let's see. How will uh, the Internet of Things affect us from a security perspective, if that, makes, if that question makes sense to you? It makes perfect sense to me. Before we actually answer the question, I guess we have to address really what the Internet of Things is, because that's one of those marketing terms that gets thrown around. Yeah, so we've done a number of shows things on that. Actually, the computer is complete computerization of our lives. So you'd come home, and your, your heating system is hooked into the Internet. Your refrigerator is hooked into the Internet. Your toaster is hooked into the Internet. Your car is hooked into the Internet. So now just think about this. Look at the security problems we have today and just dealing with computers and communication devices and trying to make them secure. Now you have to make your toaster secure. You have to make your heating system secure. So there are, there are tremendous challenges. So as individual people, you know, as we become, if we think we're automated today and we're technological today, in five or ten years, uh, we're going to look back at, you know, at 2015 and we're going to wonder how we actually lived, you know, because we're, we're running in that direction. I mean, look at what Google's doing with uh, cars that can self-drive, you know. Those machines, those devices have to be able to talk to each other. And if you're on the Internet and, you can, and you're communicating as a device on the Internet, especially machine to machine, uh, anything that's on the Internet can eventually be compromised. So what we, what we want to try to avoid with good engineering design is we want to build security into those devices so to not make them uh, wide open targets for, uh, for criminals and uh, anybody who'd want to misuse the technology. So what you're telling me is that my uh, computerized refrigerator is telling me I need to buy milk. Somebody can hack that? And it's not so much, in my opinion, it's not so much that you need milk that makes that dangerous. But if they can hack your uh, refrigerator, your refrigerator is on the same network as your phone, your laptop, your desktop. Uh, maybe you might have a small storage array in your house, which people do have today, especially for things like music and videos and stuff like that. Well, once they're inside your network, it can be relatively easy to move laterally. And what I mean by laterally is move from device to device. So you may think that, uh, well, you know, uh, I don't have to worry about my toaster or my refrigerator because there's nothing there that I care about. Well, what you care about is somebody can use that as a launching point within your home or your business to get the things that are absolutely more valuable. I mean, look at how, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the target intrusion, look at how they were broken into. They were broken into as a result of uh, one of their vendors that handled their heating and ventil ventilation and air conditioning systems. You're exactly right. I mean, it's a, it's a scary thing. I guess we have uh, time for one more question. Cloud computing is all over the place. We talk about it all the time. We do shows on it. How is that affecting or affected by uh, this whole digital forensics and cybersecurity? Yeah, so the uh, cloud forensics is, uh, is kind of uh, revolutionizing the way we, we do business digitally today. Because now with, with uh, sorry, not cloud friends, but cloud computing. <laughs> so cloud computing allows us as individuals and, and as organizations and as companies to remotely store data, applications, entire virtual machines can be stored up in the cloud. So 
from a law enforcement perspective, one of the challenges, let's, let's take a hypothetical. Let's say we have a business and we're suspected that they're committing, they're involved in, let's say, mortgage fraud. And uh, we get a search warrant from a judge and we execute a search warrant on, on that business. We go in and we're looking for records. You know, we're not, we're not looking for hairs and fibers. We're not looking for, uh, you know, ballistics, you know, especially in a fraud investigation. You know, we're looking for those accounting records. We go in and we find there's nothing stored locally in that business. It's all up in the cloud. So the first challenge is, okay, it's up in the cloud. Who's the cloud storage provider? Number two, the second thing is, okay, where is it actually being stored? Is it actually in the United States? Just because this company was in Fairfax, Virginia, uh, doesn't mean that their, their data may be sitting in Beijing, China. And so the, the challenges there with cloud computing uh, are that uh, it used to be, okay, well, I, I know where the evidence is, so I get the proper court orders and I go and I get it. Now, on the digital side is the, the data could be anywhere on the planet. That's scary to think about, Bob. I really appreciate you taking the time with this. This is a very informative show. We're going to have to have you back on. We've got a lot of a lot more questions we'd like to ask you, especially how we can uh, help use this. But I appreciate your efforts, and I appreciate your service to the country with the FBI. Uh, thank, thank you for giving me uh, a chance to speak. Next week, we're going to again be live from our New York offices. I want to thank Terry Ruggiero, I'm Vice President, Dave Brandon, Dan DiOri, and Jose Batista for our Week in Review. Taylor Evans, our producer, Matt Campagni, is our executive producer. And without the help of Robert Bombeck from the KFNX AM 1100 production department, you wouldn't have heard a word we said. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to tune into Tech Talk next week at 6 p.m. in New York on KFNX AM 1100. Remember to send us your suggestions for future shows or ask us questions by sending an email to techtalk at imi-us.com. Have a great week, and thanks again for listening.